Part two of Book Three, Chapter Twenty of These Twain by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part three, Chapter Twenty, Part two. Three. I shan't take that house, you know," said Edwin casually and yet confidentially, in a pause which followed a long analysis by Inkpen of Inkpen's sensations in hospital for before he was out of danger. They sat on opposite sides of a splendid, extravagant fire in Ingpen's dining-room. Ingpen, sprawling in a shabby, uncomfortable easy-chair, and flushed with the activity of digestion, raised his eyebrows, squinted down at the cigarette between his lips, and answered impartially, No, so I gather. Of course, you must understand it was Hilda's plan to go up there. I merely fell in with it. Simplest thing to do in these cases. Certainly. Thus they both condescended to the feather-headed, capricious woman, dismissed her, and felt a marked access of sincere intimacy on a plane of civilization exclusively masculine. In the succeeding silence of satisfaction and relief could be heard George, in the drawing-room above, practising again the piano part of a Haydn violin sonata, which he had very nervously tried over with Ingpen while they were awaiting dinner. Ingpen said suddenly, I say, old chap, why have you never mentioned that you happened to meet a certain person in my room at Hambridge that night you went over there for me? He frowned. Edwin had a thrill, pleasurable and apprehensive, at the prospect of a supreme confidence. It was of no earthly business of mine, he answered lightly. But his tone conveyed, You surely ought to be aware that my loyalty and my discretion are complete. An Ingpen, replying to Edwin's tone, said, with a simple directness that flattered Edwin to the heart, Naturally I knew I was quite safe in your hands. I've reassured the lady. Ingpen smiled slightly. Edwin was too proud to tell Ingpen that he had not said a word to Hilda, and Ingpen was too proud to tell Edwin that he assumed as much. At that moment Hilda came into the room, murmuring a carol that some children of Stockbrook had sung on the doorstep during dinner. Don't be afraid, I'm not going to interrupt. I know you're in the thick of it, said she archly, not guessing how exactly truthful she was. Ingpen, keeping his presence of mind in the most admirable manner, rejoined with irony, You don't mean to say you've finished already explaining to Mrs. Dummer how she ought to run my house for me. How soon do you mean to have this table cleared? asked Hilda. The Christmas dinner, served by a raw girl in a large bluish-white pinafore, temporarily hired to assist Mrs. Dummer, the housekeeper, had been a good one. Its only real fault was that it had a little too much the air of being a special and mighty effort, and although it owed something to Hilda's parcels, Ingpen was justified in the self-satisfaction which he did not quite conceal as a bachelor host. But now, under Hilda's quizzing gaze, not merely the table but the room and the house sank to the tenth rate. The coarse imperfections of the linen and the cutlery grew very apparent. The disorder of bottles and glasses and cups recalled the refectory of an inferior club. And the untidiness of the room, heaped with accumulations of newspapers, magazines, documents, books, boxes and musical instrument cases, loudly accused the solitary despot whose daily caprices of arrangement were perpetuated and rendered sacred by the UKC that nothing was to be disturbed. Hilda's glinting eyes seemed to challenge each corner and dark place to confess its shameful dirt, 
and the malicious poise of her head mysteriously communicated the fact that in the past fortnight she had spied out every sinister secret in the whole graceless, primitive wigwam. This table, retorted Ingpen bravely, is going to be cleared when it won't disturb me to have it cleared. All right, said Hilda, but Mrs. Dummer does want to get on with her washing up. Look here, madam, Ingpen replied, you're a little ray of sunshine and all that, and I'm the first to say so, but I'm not your husband. He made a warning gesture. Now don't say you'd be sorry for any woman I was the husband of. Think of something more original. He burst out laughing. Hilda went to the window and looked out at the fading day. Please, I only popped in to say that it's nearly a quarter to three, and George and I will go down to the inn and bring the dog cart up here. I want a little walk. We shan't get home till dark as it is. Oh, chant it and stop for tea, and all will be forgiven. Drive home in the dark, not much, Edwin murmured. He's afraid of my driving, said Hilda. When Edwin and Ingpen were alone together once more, Ingpen's expression changed back instantly to that which Hilda had disturbed, and Edwin's impatience, which had uneasily simmered during the interruption, began to boil. Her husband's in a lunatic asylum, I may tell you, said Ingpen. Whose? The young woman's in question. For Edwin, it was as if a door had opened in a wall and disclosed a vast, unsuspected garden of romance. Really? Yes, my boy, Ingpen went on quietly, with restraint, but not without a naive and healthy pride in the sudden display of the marvellous garden. And I didn't meet her at a concert or on the Grand Canal or anything of that sort. I met her in a mill at Oldham while I was doing my job. He was the boss of the mill. I walked into an office, and he was lying on the floor on the flat of his back, and she was wiping her feet on his chest. He was saying in a very anxious tone, You aren't half wiping them. Harder, harder. That was his little weakness, you see. He happened to be convinced that he was a doormat. She had been hiding the thing for weeks, coming with him to the works and so on to calm him. Ingpen spoke more quickly and excitedly. I never saw a more awful thing in my life. I never saw a more awful thing in my life. And coming across it suddenly, you see, there was something absolutely odious in him lying down like that, and her trying to soothe him in the way he wanted. You should have seen the serious expression of his face, simply bursting with anxiety for her to wipe her boots properly on him. And her face when she caught sight of me. Ah, oh, dreadful, dreadful. Ingpen paused, and then continued calmly. Of course, I soon tumbled to it. For the matter of that, it didn't want much tumbling to. He went raving mad the same afternoon and he's been more or less raving mad ever since. What a ghastly business. Any children? No, thank God, Ingpen answered with fresh emotion. But don't you forget that she's still the wife of that lunatic, and he'll probably live forever. She's tied up to him just as if she was tied up to a post. Those are our divorce laws. Isn't it appalling? Isn't it inconceivable? Just think of the situation of that woman. Ingpen positively glared at Edwin in the intensity of his indignation. Awful. Edwin murmured. Quite alone in the world, you know, said Ingpen. I'm hanged if I know what she'd have done without me. She hadn't a friend. At any rate, she hadn't a friend with a grain of sense. Astonishing how solitary some couples are. It aged her frightfully. She's much younger than she looks. Happily, there was a bit of money. Enough, in fact. Deeply as Edwin had been impressed by his romantic discovery of a woman in Ingpen's room at Hanbridge, he was still more impressed by it now. 
he saw the whole scene again, and saw it far more poetically. He accused himself of blindness, and also of a certain harshness of attitude towards the woman. He endowed her now with wondrous qualities. The adventure, in its tragicalness and its clandestine tenderness, was enchanting. How exquisite must be the relations between Ingpen and the woman, if, without warning, she could go to his lair at night and wait confidently for his return! How divine the surprise for him, how ardent the welcome! He envied Ingpen, and also he admired him, for Ingpen had obviously conducted the affair with worthy expertise, and he had known how to win devotion. With an air of impartiality, Ingpen proceeded. You wouldn't see her quite at her best, I'm afraid. She's very shy, and naturally she'd be more shy than ever when you saw her. She's quite a different woman when the shyness has worn off. The first two or three times I met her, I must say, I didn't think she was anything more than a nice, well-meaning creature. You know what I mean. But she's much more than that. Can't play, but I believe she has a real feeling for music. She has time for reading, and she does read. And she has a more masculine understanding than nearly any other woman I've ever come across. You wait a bit, thought Edwin. This simplicity on the part of a notable man of the world pleased him, and gave him a comfortable sense of superiority. Aloud, he responded sympathetically. Good. Do I understand she's living in the five towns now? Yes, said Ingpen, after a hesitation. He spoke in a peculiar, significant voice, carefully modest. The single monosyllable conveyed to Ebin, I cannot deny it. I was necessary to this woman, and in the end she followed me. Ebin was impressed anew by the full revelation of romance which concealed itself in the squalid dailiness of the five towns. In fact, said Ingpen, you never know your luck. If she'd been free, I might have been fool enough to get married. Why do you say a thing like that? Because I think I should be a fool to marry. Ingpen, tapping his front teeth with his fingernail, spoke reflectively, persuasively, and with calm detachment. Why? asked Edwin, persuasively also, but nervously, as though the spirit of adventure in the search for truth was pushing him to fatal dangers. Marriage isn't worth the price, for me, that is. I dare say I'm peculiar. Ingpen said this quite seriously, prepared to consider impartially the proposition that he was peculiar. The fact is, my boy, I think my freedom is worth a bit more than I could get out of any marriage. That's all very well, said Edwin, trying to speak with the same dispassionate conviction as Ingpen, and scarcely succeeding. But look what you miss. Look how you live. Almost involuntarily, he glanced with self-complacence round the unlovely, unseemly room, and his glance seemed to penetrate ceilings and walls, and to discover and condemn the whole charmless house from top to bottom. "'Why, what's the matter with it?' Ingpen replied uneasily. A slight flush came into his cheeks. "'Nobody has a more comfortable bed or more comfortable boots than I have. How many women can make coffee as good as mine?' No woman ever born can make first-class tea. I have all I want. No, you don't. And what's the good of talking about coffee and tea and beds? Well, what else is that I want that I haven't got? If you mean fancy cushions and draperies, no thanks. You know what I mean, all right. And then freedom, as you say. What do you mean by freedom? I don't specially mean, said Ingpen, tranquil and benevolent, what I may call physical freedom. I give that up. I'd like a certain amount of untidiness, for instance, and I don't think an absence of dust is the greatest thing in the world, but I wouldn't in the least mind giving all that up. 
It wouldn't really matter to me. What I won't give up is my intellectual freedom. Perhaps I mean intellectual honesty. I'd give up even my intellectual freedom if I could be deprived of it fairly and honestly. But I shouldn't be. There's almost no intellectual honesty in marriage. There can't be. The entire affair is a series of compromises, chiefly based on the part of the man. The alternative is absolute subjection of the woman, which is offensive. No woman not absolutely a slave ever hears the truth except in anger. You can't say the same about men, and you know it. I'm not blaming, I'm stating. Even assuming a married man gets a few advantages that I miss, they're all purely physical. Oh, no, not at all. My boy, Inkpen insisted, sitting up and gazing earnestly at Edwin, analyse them down, and they're all physical, all. And I tell you, I won't pay the price for them. I won't. I've no grievance against women. I can enjoy being with women as much as anybody, but I won't. I will not live permanently on their level. That's why I say I might have been fool enough to get married. It's quite simple. Hmm. Edwin, although indubitably one of those who had committed the vast folly of marriage, and therefore subject to Ingpen's indictment, felt not the least constraint, nor any need to offer an individual defence. Ingpen's demeanour seemed to have lifted the argument above the personal. His assumption that Edwin could not be offended was positively inspiring to Edwin. The fear of truth was exercised. Freedom of thought existed in that room in England. Edwin reflected, If he's right, and I'm condemned accordingly, well, I can't help it. Facts are facts, and they're extremely interesting. He also reflected, Why on earth can't Hilda and I discuss like that? He did not know why, but he profoundly and sadly knew that such discussion would be quite impossible with Hilda. The red-hot coals in the grate subsided together. And I'll tell you another thing, Ingpen commenced. He was stopped by the entrance of Mrs. Dummer, a fat woman with an old japanned tray. Mrs. Dummer came in like a desperate, forlorn hope. Her aged, grim, and yet somewhat hysterical face seemed to say, I'm going to clear this table and get on with my work, even though I die for it at the hands of a brutal tyrant. Her gestures, as she made a space for the tray and set it down on the table, were the formidable gestures of the persecuted at bay. Mrs. Dummer, said Ingpen in a weak voice, leaning back in his chair, would you mind fetching me my tonic off my dressing table? I've forgotten it. Bless us, exclaimed Mrs. Dummer. As she had hurried out, Ingpen winked placidly at Edwin in the room in which the shadows were already falling. Nevertheless, when the dog-cart arrived at the front door, Ingpen didn't seem to show some signs of exhaustion. Hilda would not get down. She sent word into the house by George that the departure must occur at once. Ingpen went out with Edwin, plaintively teased Hilda about the insufferable pride of those who sit in driving seats, and took leave of her with the most punctilious and chivalrous ceremonial, while Hilda, inscrutably smiling, bent down to him with condescension from her perch. "'I'll sit behind going home, I think,' said Edwin. "'George, you can sit with your mother.' "'Chick-chick!' Tilda signalled. The mare, with a jerk, started off down the misty and darkening road. 4. The second and major catastrophe occurred very soon after the arrival in Trafalgar Road. It was three-quarters of an hour after sunset, and the street lamps were lighted. Unchpin, with gloomy fatalism, shivered obscurely in the dark porch, 
waiting to drive the dog-cart down to the stable. Hilda had requested his presence. It was she also who had got him to bring the equipage up to the house in the morning. She had implied, but not asserted, that to harness the mare and trot up to Bleakridge was the work of a few minutes, and that a few minutes' light labour could make no real difference to Unchpin's Christmas day. Edwin, descrying Unchpin in the porch, saw merely a defenceless man who had been robbed of the most sacred holiday of the year in order to gratify the selfish caprice of an overbearing woman. When asked how long he had been in the porch, Unchpin firmly answered that he had been there since three o'clock, the hour appointed by Mrs. Clayhanger. Edwin knew nothing of this appointment, and in it he saw more evidence of Hilda's thoughtless egotism. He perceived that he would be compelled to stop her from using his employees as her private servants, and that the prohibition would probably cause trouble. Hilda demanded curtly of Unchpin why he had not waited in the warm kitchen, according to instructions, instead of catching his death of cold in the porch. The reply was that he rung and knocked fifteen times without getting a response. At this, Hilda became angry not only with Emmy, the defaulting servant, but with the entire servant class and with the world. Emmy, the new cook and temporarily the sole resident servant, was to have gone to Maggie's for her Christmas dinner, and to have returned at half-past two without fail, in order to light the drawing-room fire and prepare for tea-making. But, Maggie at the last moment having decided to go to Clara's for the middle of the day, Emmy was told to go with her and be as useful as she could be at Mrs. Bembo's until a quarter-past two. "'I hope you've got your latch-key, Edwin,' said Hilda threateningly, as if ready to assume that with characteristic and inexcusable negligence he had left his latch-key at home. "'I have,' he said dryly, drawing the key from his pocket. "'Oh,' she muttered, as if saying, "'Well, after all, you're no better than you ought to be,' and took the key. While she opened the door, Edwin surreptitiously gave half a crown to Unchpin, who was lighting the carriage lamps. George, with the marvellous self-preserving instinct of a small animal unprotected against irritated, prowling monsters, had become invisible. The front doorway yawned black like the portal of a tomb. The place was a terrible negation of Christmas. Edwin felt for the radiator. It was as cold to the touch as a dead hand. He lit the hall lamp, and the decorations of holly and mistletoe contrived by Hilda and George with smiles and laughter on Christmas Eve stood revealed as the very symbol of insincerity. Without taking off his hat and coat, he went into the unlighted glacial drawing-room, where Hilda was kneeling at the grate and striking matches. A fragment of newspaper blazed, and then the flame expired. The fire was badly laid. "'I'm sick of servants!' Hilda exclaimed with fury. "'Sick! They're all alike!' Her tone furiously blamed Edwin and everybody. And Edwin knew that the day was a pyramid of which this moment was the dreadful apex. At intervals during the drive home, Hilda had talked confidentially to George of the wondrous things he and she could do if they only resided in the country. Things connected with flowers, vegetables, cocks, hens, ducks, cows, rabbits, horses. She had sketched out the life of a mistress of Ladderedge Hall, and she would sketch it out for the benefit of the dull, hard man sitting behind. Her voice, so persuasive and caressing to George, had been charged with all sorts of accusations against the silent fellow whose back now and then collided with hers. She had exasperated him. She had willfully and deliberately exasperated him. Her treatment of Unchpin 
her childish outburst concerning servants, her acutely disagreeable demeanour, all combined now to exhaust the poor remainder of Edwin's patience. Not one word had been said about Ladderedge Hall, but Ladderedge Hall loomed always between them. Deadly war was imminent. Let it come. He would prefer war to a peace which meant for him nothing but insults and injustice. He would welcome war. He turned brusquely and lit the chandelier. On the table beneath it lay the writing case that Hilda had given to George, and the addition of Matthew Arnold that she had given to Edwin for a Christmas present. One of Edwin's Christmas presents to her, an ermine stole, she was wearing round her neck. Tragic absurdities, these false tokens of love. There they were, both of them in full street attire, she kneeling at the grate and he standing at the table, in the dank drawing-room which now had no resemblance to a home. Edwin said, with frigid and disdainful malevolence, I wish you could control yourself, Hilda. The fact that a servant's a bit late on Christmas Day is no reason for you to behave like a spoiled child. You're offensive. His words, righteously and almost murderously resentful, seemed to startle and frighten the very furniture, which had the air of waiting, enchanted, for disaster. Hilda turned her head and glared at Edwin. She threw back her shoulders, and her thick eyebrows seemed to meet in a passionate frown. Yes, she said with her clear, stinging articulation. That's just like you, that is. I lend my servant to your sister. She doesn't send her back, and it's my fault. I should have thought the Bembos twisted you round their little finger enough, without you having to insult me because of them. Goodness knows what tricks they didn't play to get your aunt's money, every penny of it. And now they make you do all the work of the estate for their benefit, and of course you do it like a lamb. You can never spare a minute from the works for me, but you can spare hours and hours for Auntie Hamp's estate and the Bembos. It's always like that. She paused and spoke more thickly. But I don't see why you should insult me on the top of it. Her features went awry. She sobbed. You make me ill, said Edwin savagely. He walked out of the room and pulled the door to. George was descending the stairs. Where are you going to, Uncle? demanded George as Edwin opened the front door. I'm going down to see Auntie Maggie, Edwin answered, forcing himself to speak very gently. Tell your mother if she asks. The boy guessed the situation. It was humiliating that he should guess it, and still more humiliating to be compelled to make use of him in the fatal affair. 5. He walked at a moderate pace down Trafalgar Road. He did not know where he was going. Certainly he was not going to see Maggie. He had invented the visit to Maggie instantly in answer to George's question, and he could not understand why he had invented it. Maggie would be at Clara's, and, in a misfortune, he would never go to Clara's. Only when he was successful and triumphant could he expose himself to the Bembos. The weather was damp and chill, without rain. The chilliness was rather tonic and agreeable to his body, and he felt quite warm, though on getting down from the dog-cart a few minutes earlier he had been cold almost to the point of numbness. He could not remember how nor when the change had occurred. Every street lamp was the centre of a greenish-grey sphere which presaged rain as though the street lamp were the moon. The pavements were greasy with black slime, 
the road deep in lamp-reflecting mire through which the tram lines ran straight and gleaming. Far down the slope, a cage of light moving obscurely between the glittering avenue of lamps indicated the steam tram as it lifted towards the further hill into the heart of the town. Where the lamps merged together and vanished, but a little to the left, the illuminated dial of the clock in the town hall tower glowed in the dark heavens. The street was deserted. No signal boys, no ragged girls staring into sweet shops, no artisans returning from work, no rattling carts, no vehicles of any kind save the distant tram. All the little shops were shut. Even the little greengrocer's shop, which never closed, was shut now, and its customary winter smell of oranges and apples withdrawn. The little inns, not yet open, showed through their lettered plate windows one watching jet of gas amid blue and red paper festoons and bunches of holly. The gloomy fronts of nearly all the houses were pierced with oblongs of light on which sometimes appeared transient shadows of human beings. A very few other human beings, equally mysterious, passed furtive and baffling up and down the slope. Melancholy, familiar, inexplicable, and piteous, the melancholy of existence itself rose like a vapour out of the sodden ground, ennobling all the scene. The lofty disc of the town hall clock, solitary in the sky, was somehow so heart-rending, and the lives of the people both within and without the houses seemed to be so woven of futility and sorrow that the menace of eternity grew intolerable. Edwin's brain throbbed and shook like an engine-house in which the machinery was his violent thoughts. He no longer saw his marriage as a chain of disconnected episodes. He saw it as a drama, the true meaning of which was at last revealed by the climax now upon him. He'd had many misgivings about it, and had put them away, and they all swept back, presenting themselves as a series of signs that pointed to inevitable disaster. He'd been blind from wilfulness or cowardice. He now had vision. He had arrived at honesty. He said to himself, as millions of men and women have said to themselves, with awestruck calm, My marriage was a mistake. And he began to face the consequences of the admission. He was not such a fool as to attach too much importance to the immediate quarrel, nor even to the half-suppressed but supreme dissension concerning a place of residence. He assumed even that the present difficulties would somehow, with more or less satisfaction, be adjusted. What, however, would not and could not be adjusted, was the temperament that produced them. Those difficulties, which had been preceded by smaller difficulties, would be followed by greater. It was inevitable. To hope otherwise would be weakly sentimental, as his optimism during the vigil in Auntie Hamp's bedroom had been weakly sentimental. He must face the truth. She won't alter her ways, and I shan't stand them. No matter what their relations might in future superficially appear to be, their union was over. Or, if it was not actually over, it soon would be over, for the forces to shatter it were uncontrollable and increasing in strength. Of course she can't help being herself, he said impartially, but what's that got to do with me? His indictment of his wife was terrific and not to be answered. She'd always been a queer girl. On the first night he ever saw her, she had run after him into his father's garden, and stood with him in the garden porch that he had since done away with, and spoken to him in the strangest manner. She was abnormal. The dismal and perilous adventure with George Cannon could not have happened to a normal woman. She could not see reason, 
and her sense of justice was non-existent. If she wanted a thing, she must have it. In reality, she was a fierce and unscrupulous egotist, incapable of understanding a point of view other than her own. Imagine her bursting out like that about Artie Hamp's will. It showed how her mind ran. That Artie Hamp had an absolute right to dispose of her goods as she pleased, that there was a great deal to be said for Artie Hamp's arrangements, that in any case the Bembos were not to blame, that jealousy was despicable and the mark of a mean mind, that the only dignified course for himself was to execute the trust imposed upon him without complaining. These things were obvious, but not to her. No human skill could ever induce her to grant them. She did not argue. She felt. And the disaster was that she did not feel rightly. Imagine her trying to influence Ingpen's housekeeping to worry the man. She the guest and he the host. What would she say if anybody played the same game on her? She could not be moderate. She expected every consideration from others, but she would yield none. She desired a horse and trap. She had received it. And how had she used the gift? She had used it in defiance of the needs of the works. She had upset everybody and everything, and assuredly Unchpin had a very legitimate grievance. She had said that she could not feel at home in her own house while the house belonged to Maggie. Edwin had obediently bought the house, and now she wanted another house. She scorned her husband's convenience and preferences, and she wanted a house that was preposterously inaccessible. The satisfaction of her caprice for a dog-cart had not in the slightest degree appeased her egotism. On the contrary, it had further excited her egotism and sharpened its aggressiveness. And by what strange infantile paths had she gone about the enterprise of shifting Edwin into the country? Not a frank word to Edwin of the house she had found and decided upon. Silly rumours of a surprise. And she had counted upon the presence of Ingpen to disarm Edwin and to tie his hands. The conspiracy was simply childish. And because Edwin had at once shown his distaste for her scheme, she had taken offence. Her acrimony had gradually increased throughout the day, hiding for a time under malicious silences and enigmatic demeanours, darting out in remarks to third persons and drawing back, and at last displaying itself openly, cruelly, monstrously, the injustice of it all past belief. There was no excuse for Hilda, and there never would be any excuse for her. She was impossible she would be still more impossible. He did not make her responsible. He admitted that she was not responsible, but at the same time, with a disdainful and cold resentment, he condemned and hated her. He recalled Ingpen's, I won't pay the price. And I won't, he said. The end has come. He envied Ingpen. And there flitted through his mind the dream of liberty, not the liberty of ignorant youth, but liberty with experience and knowledge to, to use it. Ravishing prospect. Marriage had advantages, but he could retain those advantages in freedom. He knew what a home ought to be. He had the instinct of the interior. He considered that he could keep house as well as any woman, and better than most. He was not, in that respect, at all like Ingpen, who suffered from his inability to produce and maintain comfort. He remembered Ingpen's historic habitual phrase about the proper place for women, behind the veil. It was a phrase which intensely annoyed women, but nevertheless, how true. And Ingpen had put it into practice. Ingpen, even of the banal five towns, had shown the way. 
He saw the existence of males with its rationality and its dependableness, its simplicity, its directness, its honesty, as something ideal. And, as he pictured such an existence, with or without the romance of mysterious and interesting creatures ever modestly waiting for attention behind the veil, further souvenirs of Hilda's willful naughtiness and injustice rushed into his mind by thousands. In formulating to himself his indictment against her, he had overlooked ninety percent of them. They were endless, innumerable. He marshalled them again and again with the fiercest virulence, the most sombre gloom, with sardonic, bitter pleasure. In the hollow where Trafalgar Road begins to be known as Duck Bank, he turned to the left, and, crossing the foot of Woodison Bank, arrived at one of the oldest quarters of the town, where St Luke's Church stands in its churchyard amid a triangle of little ancient houses. By the light of a new and improved gas lamp at the churchyard gates could be seen the dark silhouette of the Norman Tower and the occasional white gleam of gravestones. One solitary couple, arm in arm, and bending slightly towards each other, came sauntering in the mud past the historic national schools towards the illumination of the lamp. The man was a volunteer with a brilliant vermilion tunic, white belt and black trousers. He wore his hat jauntily and carried a diminutive cane. Pride was his warm overcoat. The girl was stout and short, with a heavily flowered hat and a dark amorphous cloak. Under her left arm she carried a parcel. They were absorbed in themselves. Edwin discerned first the man's face, in which was gentle and harmless coxcombry, and then the girl's face, ecstatic, upward-gazing, seeing absolutely naught but the youth. It was Emmy's face, as Edwin perceived after a momentary doubt due to his unfamiliarity with the inhabitants of his own house. Emmy, so impatiently and angrily awaited by her mistress, had lost her head about her uniform. Emmy, whose place was in the kitchen among saucepans and crockery, dishclouts and brushes, had escaped into another realm where time is not. That she had no immediate intention of returning to the kitchen was shown by the fact that she was moving deliberately in a direction away from it. She was not pretty, for Hilda had perforce long since ceased to insist upon physical charm in her servants. She was not even young. She was probably older than the adorned soldier. But her rapt ecstasy, her fearful bliss, made a marvellous sight, rendered touching by the girl's coarse gawkiness. It seemed lamentable, pathetic, to Edwin that destiny should not permit her to remain forever in that dream. Can it be possible, he thought, that a creature capable of such surpassing emotion is compelled to cook my bacon and black my boots? The couple, wordless, strolled onwards, sticking close to the railings. The churchyard was locked, but Emmy and the soldier were doing the best they could to satisfy that instinct which in the five towns seems to drive lovers to graves for their pleasure. The little houses cast here and there a blind yellow eye on the silent and tranquil scene. Edwin turned abruptly back into Woodison Bank, feeling that he was a disturber of the peace. Suddenly deciding to walk up to Hillport for the sake of the exercise, he quickened his pace. After a mile and a half, when he crossed the railway at Shawport and was on the Hillport Rise, and the five towns had begun to spread out in a map behind him, he noticed that he was perspiring. He very seldom perspired, and therefore he had the conviction that the walk was doing him good. He felt exhilarated and moved still faster. 
His mood was now changed. The spectacle of Emmy and the soldier had thrown him violently out of resentment into wonder. His indignation was somewhat exhausted, and though he tried again and again to flick it back into full heat and activity, he could not. He kept thinking of the moment in the morning when, standing ready to jump from the dog-cart, his wife had said, Catch me, both of you, and he recalled vividly the sensation of her acquiescence, her momentary yielding, imperceptible yet unforgettable, as he supported her strongly in his arms. And with this memory was mingled the smell of velvet. Strange that a woman so harsh, selfish and overbearing could thus contradict her whole character in an instant of surrender. Was she in that gesture confiding to him the deepest secret? Rubbish. But now he no longer looked down on her disdainfully. Honesty made him admit that it was puerile to affect disdain of an individuality so powerful and so mysterious. If she was a foe, she was at any rate a dangerous fighter and not to be played with. And yet she could be a trifle, a wisp of fragile flesh in his arms. He saw the beatific face of Emmy against the churchyard gates under the lamp. Why not humour Hilda? Why not let her plant their home according to her caprice? Certainly not. Never would he do it. Why should he? Time after time he angrily rejected the idea. Time after time it returned. What did it matter to Hilda where she lived? And had he not bought their present house solely in order to please her? The first consideration in choosing a home ought to be, and must be, the consideration of business convenience. Yet what did it matter to him where his home was? He remembered a phrase of Ingpen's. I don't live on that plane. Could he not adapt himself? He dreamt of very rapid transit between Ladder Edge Hall and the works. Motor cars had just become lawful, but he had never happened to see one, though he had heard of several in the district or passing through. His imagination could not rise so high as a motor car. That he could ever use or possess one did not even occur to him. He thought only of a fast trotting horse and a trap with India rubber tyres, himself the driver sometimes Hilda the driver, an equipage to earn renown in the district, Clayhanger's Trap. He drives him from Ladderidge in thirty-five minutes. The horse simply won't walk, doesn't know how to. And so on. He had heard such talk of others. Why should not others hear it of him? Then the pleasure, the mere pleasure, call it sensual or what you like, of granting caprice to that capricious creature. If a thing afforded her joy, why not give it? To see her in the role of mistress of a country house, delicately horsey, excited about charitable schemes, protecting the poor, working her will upon gardeners and grooms, stamping her foot in the violence of her resolution to have her own way, offering sugar to a horse nursing a sick dog. Amusing, agreeable. And all that activity of hers a mere dependence of his own, flattering to his pride. He could afford it easily, for he was richer even than his wife supposed. To let the present house ought not to be difficult. To sell it advantageously ought not to be impossible. In this connection he thought, though not seriously, of Tom Swetnam, who had at last got himself engaged to one of those Scandinavian women about whom he had been chafed for years. Tom would be wanting an abode, and probably a good one. He was carried away by his own dream. To realise that dream he had only to yield to nod negligently, to murmur with benevolent tolerance, All right, do as you please. 
he would have nothing to withdraw, for he had uttered no refusal. Not a word had passed between them as to Ladderedge Hall since they had quitted it. He merely said that he did not like it. Poured cold water on it, as the phrase was. True, his demeanour had plainly intimated that he was still opposed in principle to the entire project of living in the country. But a demeanour need not be formally retracted. It could be negatives without any humiliation. No, he would never yield. Though yielding seemed to open up a pleasant, a delicious prospect. He could not yield. It would be wrong and it would be dangerous to yield. Had he not already quite clearly argued out with himself the whole position? And yet, why not yield? He was afraid as before a temptation. He recrossed the railway and crossed Fowley Brook, a boundary, back into the borough. The dark path lay parallel with the canal, but below it. He had gone right through Hillport and round Hillport Marsh and returned down the flank of the great ridge that protects the five towns on the west. He could not recollect the details of the walk. He only knew that he had done it all, that time and the miles had passed with miraculous rapidity and that his boots were very muddy. A change in the consistency of the mud caused him to look up at the sky, which was clearing and showed patches of faint stars. A frost had set in, despite the rainy prophecy of street lamps. In a few moments he had climbed the short, steep, curving slope onto the canal bridge. He was breathless and very hot. He stopped and sat on the parapet. In his school days he had crossed his bridge twice a day on the journey to and from Oldcastle. Many times he had lingered on it. But he had forgotten the little episodes of his school days, which seemed now almost to belong to another incarnation. He did, however, recall that as a boy he could not sit on the parapet unless he vaulted up to it. He thought he must have been ridiculously small and boyish. The lights of Bursley, Bleakridge, Hambridge and Calden hung round the eastern horizon in an arc. To the north presided the clock of Bursley Town Hall, and to the south the clock of Calden Church, but both were much too far off to be deciphered. Below and around the church clock the vague fires of Calden Bar Arum works played, and the tremendous respiration of the blast furnaces filled the evening. Beneath him gleamed the foul water of the canal. He trembled with the fever that precedes a supreme decision. He trembled as though he was about to decide whether or not he would throw himself into the canal. Should he accept the country house scheme? Ought he to accept it? The question was not simply that of a place of residence. It concerned all his life. End of part two of book three, chapter twenty.